go, right? Maybe you've been a part of that or you've seen that. The idea of uh, you go around the circle and the, the bar gets a little bit lower and see if you can lean back and get under that bar just a little one more time. So the person's finally eliminated from the contest, right? When they fall to the ground on their back maybe, uh, unable to get under the bar. This morning, we're learning from one of God's prophets who thought he had resigned his post. He thought, okay, God, what you want me to do, I'm not up for that. I resign. He proceeds to sink lower than he ever imagined he could, literally. But still he found God's grace in serving the sovereign, saving God had not run out. Not for the people he was to share with and not for him. So we're just going to step through this first chapter of Jonah, walk through it kind of to get a good understanding of the landscape of it. And then we're going to be looking at implications for those who represent God to the world. And anyone who knows Christ as their Savior is one who has been called to represent God to this world. So we see first as we move through Jonah 1 that the Lord reaches out and the prophet resigns. We read, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amatai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, Jonah is the only prophet of God who was called to go to a heathen nation. Heathen meaning um, that basically they were pursuing religion as they saw fit. They were pursuing a religion that was, that was made in their image rather than recognizing that we are made in God's image. Basically, it's any sort of religion outside of following the biblical God of Jehovah and of Christianity. And so this would have been, and the message was going to be given to Jonah to, to, to give as he, um, as he uh, got there and, and what he was to proclaim. But this would have been a journey of, of many, many days, over 500 miles from where Jonah was. This was quite um, a work that he was given to do. And so Jonah packs up and heads in the other direction. It says, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. And it's almost like as Jonah writes this, yeah, if you can believe it, I wasn't going in that direction. To Tarshish, I tell you. He says three times, to Tarshish. We don't know much about this area of Tarshish. It's thought to be on the southern tip of Spain. So basically, Jonah's called to go 500 miles in one direction. He goes beyond 500 miles to the west. His plan is to go in the complete opposite other direction. 
And we see this strange statement that he makes, from the presence of the Lord. And the thought there is, if I can, if, if I can get away from the high places, those, those shrines that the northern tribes of Israel had set up, thinking that that is, is uh, where they would meet with God, because Jerusalem was in the southern portion of the divided kingdom. The thought would have been, away from Jerusalem, away from our places of worship, thinking away from the Lord himself. We see here the Lord responds and the sailors react. It says, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so the ship threatened to break up. But the mariners were afraid. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. The thought is there that, that maybe if we are overcome by one of these waves or something, that, that we might not sink or we might fare better. God is actively at work throughout this account that Jonah gives us. It says that the Lord hurled, literally caused a wind to burst forth onto the sea. The sailors are showing uh, obvious fear because this is a, a storm of a severity and it's likely out of season that we see that their soon thought is this is supernatural. Then it says that each of them cried out to his own God. And we'll look next week more at this comparison between the active God of the Bible and the ruling God of the Bible, the sovereign God of the Bible, and these individual deities that these sailors each hold to, or they think, maybe if I do this, it'll, it'll make this one happy. Maybe it's coming from this God. And they start their own hurling of cargo, if you will. You know, this would have been a bad sign. Maybe you've been on a plane where uh, things start to get choppy, the turbulence start to get bumpy, and you kind of look around at the crew wondering, you know, what's, is, this, is this a bad thing? Uh, Kelly's aunt was one on, on one of these plane trips one time, and she knew it was a problem because she looks over at the stewardess who's sitting in the jump seat strapped in, and the lady's crying. So it's like, this isn't good. The sailors are freaking out. You know, th- this is not a good sign. But Jonah isn't even aware. We see in uh, the rest of verse 4, But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and he lay down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now, it's interesting here, and and we don't need to make too much of it, but we're told that Jonah goes down to Joppa and that he goes down into a ship. And then it references it again where he had gone down into the inner part of the ship and he'd gone down and was fast asleep. And and this, this captain speaks the same word that God had said earlier, arise. Arise. 
the sense of, of, of God calling to him even from this pagan sailor. The captain's recruiting more people to pray. It's as if he's, he's asked the crew, is there anybody else that can call to some other God because this is not working? He finds one more guy. And we see that the Lord exposes and Jonah has to explain. They said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Now, this could be as simple as having two stones with one of them painted on one side. Okay, and it would be like flipping two coins. And if it's a double heads, it's yes, yes. You know, and, and so, and casting lots was something that was, was common even among God's people in the Old Testament. One thing that you see in the scriptures, though, is with the coming of the Holy Spirit, God's people no longer cast lots. But this was a common thing to do, and a common thing that God had used even to direct. And we see that, that Jonah, maybe as his eyes are shifting back and forth, waiting for who's going to be looking at him first, knowing it's me. It's me that's the, that's, that's the cause of this. It's me that God is trying to get the attention of. It says, then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and what are the people are you? These questions are all still trying to get to the same answer. What God is doing this? What God do you represent? Who is angry with us right now? And for them to understand how severe is this? Jonah responds, explaining. He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. When he talks of himself as being a Hebrew, this is how an Israelite would have described themselves to a Gentile person. I am a Hebrew. In Jonah's statement, we'll look at more next week as we look at God being the Lord of all the earth, something that was un- these sailors are unaccustomed to, this idea that, that God who made the heavens, the God of heaven who made the sea and made the dry land, it's not one for this and one for that. And we'll look at how God interacts or, or compares to these sailors' beliefs. But it's interesting, you, you almost wonder if, as Jonah says this, I, I fear the Lord. You know, it's almost like he's just going through the motions. He's just kind of saying what he's supposed to say because his life at this point did not really show this. He's come to face to face with the fact that God is in control no matter how much Jonah is trying to control what God is able to do through him. In fact, Jonah finds out that he can't even keep God from proclaiming the truth through him to these sailors. 
And then we see the sailors at a loss, and Jonah is tossed. The men were exceedingly afraid, it says, and said to him, What is this that you have done? More likely over the wind and waves, What is this you have done? Then it goes on, For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. What you notice here, it's not a question, right? There's no question mark here. It's look at this thing that you have done. Does anybody seem like the sailors are maybe more impressed with Jonah's God than he is? The God of the whole earth, the God of heaven who'd made the sea and the dry land had kind of become old hat for Jonah. He continues, they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. In other words, for God keeps pushing them and pushing them with the sea. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. More hurling. Then the sea will quiet down. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So with the sea getting worse than before, the sailors consult Jonah for what his mighty God would want for them to do in this situation. And and we see then they question his recommendation. It's obvious that, that not after all this, a God... This is not a God that they want to further anger, okay? They, they don't want to be like, okay, toss him in, and then the waves get worse and be like, okay, that wasn't the good thing. Get, you know, can you fish him back out or something like that? You know, they go on. They say, it says, nevertheless, the men rowed harder to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. In other words, God is pushing them more and more and more. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleases you. So we see, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. With the anger of the sea seeming to tell them that the Lord of all the earth was not going to let them return, they were left with only the choice that Jonah had recommended. And for the third time, we see somebody get hurled, and this time it's Jonah. And the calming of the sea here is just as much a miracle as the rising of the storm. In fact, it proves the fact that Yahweh caused the storm in the first place. Then we read, the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And next week we'll approach this process of these men going from being greatly afraid to, quote, fearing the Lord. Then we read, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. 
We'll also look next week more closely at the idea that this great fish was appointed by Yahweh, the Lord, to shed his grace on Jonah rather than letting him drown. You know, of all the characters here in the book of Jonah, the main character is God himself, or the Lord as they use Yahweh, Jehovah, in the whole book of Jonah. But as the story broke on Thursday, this story caused me to share first the role that Jonah plays in this account. Sadly, we heard of another person going on a deranged rampage off of some demented motivation at a community college in Oregon. And as stories came from the wounded, one thing became apparent, and that is that the gunman took time to ask a classroom of people, which one of you are Christians? And a yes meant their death. We should be amazed by the boldness that was shown by those that affirmed their faith in Christ. And obviously it should sadden us to see our culture turning more angry and chaotic the further it turns away from God and its biblical values. We see in Jonah implied dangers for God's ambassadors. And I'm not referring to the danger of being shot by someone for being a Christian. We're talking more about the danger that comes from growing stagnant with God's grace and our role of sharing His grace with this world. Jonah can relate in many ways of being, uh, he can relate to us in many ways of being God's ambassadors. One of them being that like him, we are called to be God's representatives. And this is actually a major purpose of Israel's existence as God's chosen people on this earth. And the statements of 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, transfer that calling to us as Christ's body where 1 Peter uses those same descriptions as Israel had. And not that we replace Israel, that's not what I'm saying, but we have Israel's role on this earth as God's chosen people to represent Him. We read in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, but you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Different than Israel, though, is that while they had the temple in Jerusalem where people were called, come here and meet with God, we are called to meet with God and go out. We see sadly in Jonah one of these dangers for God's ambassador, and that is being conceited about God's grace. 
And I hope to help you understand what I mean by this, by, by seeing some of the background of Jonah's experience. You see, Jonah was perfectly fine being God's prophet of Israel to Israel. And he was perfectly fine to proclaim good tidings to Israel. I'm going to read for you from 2 Kings 14, verses 23 through 25. It says, In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, this is where Jonah ministered, the northern tribes of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored, though, the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amatai, the prophet who is from Gath Hefer. So you're kind of like, okay, JD, that doesn't, where are you getting? Where are we going here? Let me just kind of show you a nap, a nap, a map here. This is uh, generally the, the northern tribes of Israel at the time of Jeroboam II. And this pink here is what was said that Jonah proclaimed, brought a message to Jeroboam that even though he was still a wicked king, that God was going to expand the territory of Israel as the map says here, that this is territory under tribute to Israel. In other words, they reigned the people there and the people paid Israel. Jonah was perfectly happy to communicate to an Israel king, a king of Israel, that God was going to expand the territory and that even in his sin, this king's, In some ways, Jonah's theology was cat theology, right? We've talked a little bit about this before you remember. Dog theology is more of what we're called to, you know, and bear with me here. You know, the dog looks at his master and says, you feed me, you care for me, you love me, you must be God. Cat theology says, you feed me, you care for me, you love me, I must be God. Jonah, in some ways, represents the nation of Israel's uh, guiltiness of this idea. We are your people. We are your chosen race. We are your representatives. We must be God in this relationship. In a lot of ways, his national identity was his idol. As long as the message meant the benefit of the nation of Israel, Jonah was up for it. But his nation had become his idol, and he had decided that he had the right to decide what God should have him do and say and to whom. And we'll look next week at the fact that Jonah knew that God would bring the Ninevites to repentance, and that's why he didn't want to go there, he says in Jonah 4. 
As the commentary says, what Jonah heard was an assignment born from God's compassion on Nineveh, not an assignment that would necessarily result in judgment on that city. And let me just turn this map a little bit so you can kind of see where it fits in this greater idea. You know, Israel's a small area here. Well, eventually, some 40 years later, after Jonah is called to deliver this message to Nineveh, capital of Assyria, and this city repents of their deep violence and wickedness, the Assyrian Empire goes on to encapsulate Israel as well. It goes down as far as to the Red Sea here. That's exactly what Jonah did not want to see happen. For now, it's sufficient to know that Jonah didn't want God to be for them as he describes himself in Psalm 86, 5 through 7. For you, O Lord, are a good and forgiving you are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. This is the truth that Jonah knew about his God, but he didn't want his God to be that for these people. The statement that Jesus asks seems appropriate, or the statement that Jesus says in Matthew 5, 14 through 15, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do you light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. This is what Israel was called to be. This is what we are called to be. This was a hard assignment for Jonah to obey. Taking the gospel to a violent foreign people who didn't see, who didn't want to see him, he did not want to see them succeed in the expanse to involve his nation as well, to even to just take that extra territory that his nation had taken. And it's hard for us to see our nation change at great expense to our comfort and our sense of well-being. Most of us are not called to go to another land, but most of us see our land change from underneath our feet. We're called to take the truth into our work, into our friendly discussions, even if they might become unfriendly in the process. It's much more comfortable to keep our heads down for fear of being called narrow-minded or being called a bigot. But know that if we choose to say nothing when God calls us to speak, we are denying one of the purposes of our knowing His grace. I want to challenge even us individually, but I want to challenge small groups to consider, to consider doing something this year like, like maybe invite an unsaved neighbor night. You don't have a cookout where, where you're going to bring somebody 
that you know just is opposed to the gospel. Just to love them. I want to challenge our public school kids to participate in what's on October 8th, Bring Your Bible to School Day. I saw an interesting website, bringyourbible.org is uh, the Focus on the Family website that encourages kids in how you are allowed and can go about bring your Bible to school. Read it openly. Let kids know what's in there. We should not, we should, we should be resistant of this temptation. We should see it in Jonah, this temptation to be conceited about God's grace on us. It's grace there that's also for a purpose of shedding his grace on others. There's also a danger here of being God's ambassadors, and that's not living by the truth that we know. It says, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, we're told, from the presence of the Lord. You know, Jonah would have been familiar with Psalm 139. It says in verses 7 through 10, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Or in Jeremiah 23, 24, where God says, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? What an awesome question. Do I not fill heaven and earth? It wasn't just that Jonah didn't live by what he believed. He didn't even live by what he proclaimed. You know, as he makes a statement in verse 9, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Thinking that he could escape God's call on his life through the sea contradicts this idea that God made the sea. In reality, Jonah probably thought that, that his calling was something he could just resign that he could just walk away from. I can remember being in Albania and on an outreach with a pastor there and speaking to some, some men in the city center. And, and, and forgive me if I've shared this with you before, but one of the men just kind of looked at me and he was kind of, you know, he doubted my sincerity. He doubted, he doubted, you know, that I wasn't in this for gain. He looked at me, he said, tell me the truth. He said, you know, if all this, you know, if what you're telling me isn't true, you'd still try to tell me it, wouldn't you? You'd still do what you're doing. He said, because basically you've got a pretty good gig going. And he basically is looking at me thinking, this guy's just trying to recruit. You know, this guy's just, just in this for himself. He says, what would you do if all this wasn't true? And I just kind of paused and I thought about it. And I said to him, you know what, to be honest with you, 
if Jesus wasn't the Savior and the only way to God through him, I wouldn't be a pastor. I'd do something else. I said, it's hard work. It's not hard because people are hard. It's hard because it's an important calling. And it's hard to carry. I'd do something else. And he looked at me and he said, I think I can listen to what you have to say. But the truth is, guys, we carry the weight. It it really is. It's a weight of God's grace. It's not a weight that's hard to carry, but it, it, it's, it's so important. Everywhere we go. And it's hard to look at our friends and our family and our neighbors and our coworkers and realize that they are just reaching out for something that they're never going to find. And it's grieving. But we have the answer. And it's the fact that a relationship with God is available through Christ. And the very sins that are tripping us up are the sins that convince us that we need him. Jonah is not a special case here. We all get accustomed to the beliefs, having beliefs that really aren't convictions. You know, beliefs that we say, yeah, well, I know this is right, but when it really comes down to it, if I have something to lose or if, I, if it's just too much work, uh, that's not what I do. Right? Jonah's proclaiming his beliefs here, but the fact that he's heading in the other direction away from God's calling on his life shows they're, they're not his convictions. We've all seen or heard someone getting drunk and trying to do something impossible or stupid, you know, maybe trying to ride a bull out in the middle of its pasture or something. You know, YouTube is full of fail compilations of people that, that are, are trying something under inebriation or, or peer pressure. Sin causes us to become drunk with pride and self-sufficiency, or thinking that our life plan need not be directed by God, right? You're not called into the ministry. So what do you need to do? Why, why would you need to pray about what you should do tomorrow or, or where you should live? That, that's that's, a, that's a, a bad way to think. We're all called to be his light. We're all called to be representing him to where, wherever it is that we work or live. But, but sin causes us to miss that. And during increased persecution, it's tempting to cling to our comforts and our hopes and our dreams. And Hebrews 3.13 embodies how we should challenge one another, where it says, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
The dangers of not living by the truth during persecution is a major topic of the book of Hebrews. And it may be that this is why the Lord has led us to this study in our small groups. Lastly, we see, and it's important to point this out here, a danger for God's ambassadors is thinking that due to our mistakes, due to our not following his will, that God is somehow done with us. This is, Jonah was not expecting to fall into the water, the, wind, the waves calm down, and then he can swim back to land. Certainly wasn't expecting a big fish. And the fish didn't have to take three days to get him back to, to where he is. I, th- I think God had some work to do. But I, I digress. It was somewhat heroic for Jonah to, to recommend that he be thrown into the sea. It was recognizing that God was not going to let this boat continue on otherwise. But also thinking that he had resigned his position as prophet, Jonah likely thought that God had issued his judgment on him. Death by drowning. was thought to be a sentence. But God wasn't done with him. As we see in chapter 2, Jonah comes to a place of recognizing that this great fish was God's grace. And we'll look next week at the the miracle that's taking place here. But the greater miracle is what's done in Jonah's heart. And if you've experienced the grace of God, of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life, having begun a relationship with God in Christ, you understand what I'm talking about, that the greater miracle is God's work in here. I want to ask yourself these questions. Am I deaf to God's calling and purpose for my life? Am I running from being involved in His work on this earth? Am I watching my loved ones trying to control the chaos around me when it's me that needs to repent? I will tell you this, as far as the family goes, when a dad needs to repent, the family gets tossed at the sea. And and on down the line. Am I sinking into a sea of guilt and shame? That's just as much the work of the enemy as the sin that brought us there. Let me just read to you from Romans 8, starting verse 31. I know it's familiar to most of you. But if we've received Christ as our Savior, it lists off, it asks the question, who's going to keep us from standing in His grace, even in our sin? Where it says, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? 
speaking of God the Father, he who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So let's look at them. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who's going to be the prosecutor? Not God the Father. It's God who justifies. The judge is on our side when we've received Christ as our Savior. Who's to condemn? Who's going to accuse us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, and is indeed interceding for us. So we've got God the Father and God the Son on our side when we know Christ is our Savior. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then continuing on in verse 38, he says, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no sea, there should be no sea of guilt and shame for those who have accepted the fact that their sins, past, present, and future, have been paid for by the blood of Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Hurling ourselves into some sort of self-payment, some sort of God's angry with me now, I can never go back to him, does not belong. It doesn't fit us. Neither God the Father nor God the Son is for it. Instead, they're for you. How low can we go? If we know Christ is our Savior, not so low, not so low that God's grace cannot reach us, change us, and use us. Let's pray.